button, you push your button. There we go. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for our monthly Q&A with Dr. Doug Lyle. We call this Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle because he gives it to you straight. But this month, we're not able to accept any questions from our viewers in general or the live chat because we have to finish up just with the last few questions from the Dugathon. What's the Dugathon? Well, boy, it was great. It was three hours of straight question answering by Dr. Doug Lyle. We'll make that video available to you for a nominal fee very soon. But those of you that participated live know how much fun it was, and we'll probably do it again. Dr. Lyle had 31 questions. He answered 26 of them. And as promised, we will finish with the questions today from the Dugathon. Please welcome back Dr. Doug Lyle. Always good to see you, Dr. Lyle. All right, AJ. All good. Good. People really just love the way you answer the questions. It's you tell a story. You know what I mean? Like I, I just, I, you just unpack things in just such a such a fun way. You know, it's almost like it's almost like sitting around a campfire. You know. Well, we do the best we can. You have a gift, Doctor Lyle. <laughs> All right. So we will start with the first question. Um, we're not saying the people's names. It's just easier because sometimes when it's they want it to be anonymous. They'll put it in the last line, and I've already read the question. Uh, the person does have a name because we do have this new feature on Chef AJ Live where we actually email you when the question's been answered. So um, that's great. So the question is, I'm really nervous about a possible visit from my 75-year-old mother. She says she'd like to visit from out of state, but it feels like a box she wants to check off. We've had a strained relationship since my narcissist father died 13 years ago. And while we are cordial on the phone these days, we haven't seen her in five years. The past visits she made were 48 hours or less, and she even cut the last one short to get home sooner. She is highly critical of our state, my home, my husband, everything, and having her come to inspect my life and family only to return home to share gossip with my sister makes me ill. She has a tendency to put on a nice facade, but her critical opinions slip out, including comments about my husband, our smaller home, etc. Do I bite the bullet and let her come, even though I'm dreading the potential status hit in her eyes because I can never measure up? Wow. That's a good question. Um, I, I have... I have a hard time answering this for this individual. In other words, this is the, these are the kinds of questions that, you know, I would probably need to talk to somebody for half an hour on a consult to do. So in, in general, um, I guess there is a, there's an underlying, hmm, I mean, let me begin by trying to just do a, a broader education with this so that it's useful for everybody. The, um, <clears throat> This is this is now I, I've come up with a because I've because I'm old school so you know I listen to the Eagles <laughs> and uh, and then Don Henley went on to do his own album and he had a beautiful song called The Heart of the Matter and that phrase uh, The Heart of the Matter is is you know, essential to a sort of concept I'm trying to share uh, with people now and to to build some education around. And uh, that will, uh, I, when I do a, 
I do a, web, uh, a seminar type thing with Jen Hawk in the fall uh, and on October 1st. And that, that will be the name of this speech that I'll give. It's going to be called The Heart of the Matter. The Heart of the Matter of Life is conflict. And the um, we don't, we, we even the word conflict makes us want to back away from it. Like, oh, no, that's not a good thing. But the thing is, is that this is where life lives and there's there's this is where the difficulties and struggles and challenges and triumphs this is where it is is it's in conflict and so understanding conflict and understanding the dynamics in and around it how it works is interesting and important the um the you know the uh, so the heart of the matter here is two two things that are in conflict Number one, do you owe your mother this process? And does she, you know, what, what's inside her head that thinks that, that this is important to her? That, that, those are interesting questions. The, the, do you owe your mother this uh, process goes, goes uh, directing conflict to that I don't want her to do it. I, I don't want this experience in my life. So, one of the you know sort of chief conflicts in life is do I do what I want to do or do I do what somebody else wants to do that involves me? And the um, so so for me, the first place I start anything is what do I want? Okay, what what is the most what do I really want to do with this hour or this week or this vacation? or this lifetime? What is it that I want? Somebody else may want something else or need, you know, or need to be involved in what it is that they want, but I may not want it. So now we've got a conflict. And for me, um, the first place that I start is what it is that I want. And that has to be the most important thing in the question. I already know that my feelings about other people and who they are wind up being integrated into this. In other words, uh, if I if I want to go play basketball, but I can see that my cat's sick, hey, what it is that I want more than anything is for my cat to be well. So therefore, that gets priority. And you might say, that's a conflict really within me. So you have conflicts within you all the time. Do I want to, as I'm reaching for something, do I, do I reach for the grape or do I reach, you know, for the, the raspberry? Like, which is it that I want? Your mind is actually in conflict and it's running to alternative scenarios and imagination and trying to um, guess which one is going to be the better option. When you go to a restaurant, you're looking at a menu. Most menus, I only have one thing that I'm going to eat, but I might go into some unusual place that has five or six options, which I do on occasion. Uh, the East West Cafe in Santa Rosa actually is a really good restaurant and it has like half a dozen things I can eat. It's like a miracle. And I've had them all. And there's one that I typically like the best, but, but you wouldn't necessarily always want it because your mood, things, you know, what you've had recently, everything shifts around. Your life is constantly in dynamic. The answer to this question is, I begin with the issue of that you don't want her to come. That the net psychological benefit to you 
you know, as least as you can imagine it in, in the short and inter intermediate term is that, no, this is a negative. I don't want it. Okay. She wants it. Okay. Do we have some long-term interest where we, we sort of owe her this if she wants, uh, if this is an important thing to her? Um, well, you obviously think so, or you wouldn't be in conflict with her. Okay. So, so now this becomes more of an issue of, okay, what is the nature of that conflict? Why would it be important to honor her wishes? Does she really want to do this or is she doing it because she thinks that, that this is part and parcel of being the mother and the matriarch of, you know, who's left, et cetera? And could we cross-examine her in such a way that it would diffuse any sense of responsibility uh, to this for her and that we could just drop it? And we drop it amicably. It's like, hey, let's, let's not do this. The... Uh, Brooks and Dunn, the two most celebrated, you know, two, two most awarded uh, people in country music, uh, sat down together after about 20 years, and they're sitting down to do one more album. And apparently they ch chatted. They said, do we really want to do this? <laughs> God knows how rich they are and how much they've done together. And they're like, you know what? Let's just drop it. Like, we don't really want to do this anymore. And they didn't. And they retired. And uh, then, then what happened is they were away for, I don't know, five, seven, 10 years or something. And then they kind of resurrect their act in Las Vegas every now and then, uh, the, the pair of them. Fair enough. Okay. So what's the heart of the matter? Part of the matter is the conflict. Okay. What's the nature of the conflict? It's the nature of the conflicts in your mom's head about what it is that she ought to be doing or wants to do, how that conflicts with what it is that you would most want, which is for her not to come. And and then the conflict in you over what what's in it for you if she does come. If the only thing that's in it for you if she does come is that you did some duty, then that's a that's not a sufficiently good idea, in my judgment. There has to be more chips on the table somehow, wider influence to your reputation if you refuse or discourage this or. God knows inheritance, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, that, 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 that figures in the equation in a way that that never would have figured in in the Stone Age. And we have to honor the fact that that can in some cases. Um, I have no idea what all of the factors are that could be in anybody's mind in a situation like this. There could be many things, okay? Could be that, you know, your mom is getting sickly and older and maybe, you know, this might be the last time you're ever going to see her. Then you would feel bad about yourself if you didn't do this complicated okay this is a complicated conflict and your your particular situation with this is highly individual uh, so that's why i can't answer it i can only point out the method by which we search for the answer which is to try to get to the heart of the matter and understand as precisely as possible the factors involved in this conflict i begin that story with what it is that i want and if i don't want that there's going to have to be a heck of a lot of compelling reason why I would ever sacrifice that. Somebody wants me to eat a steak and I want to eat the tofu and rice. There better be a hell of a good reason. Somebody better have a gun to my head for me to eat that steak. Okay. So the, uh, if you go from a gun to mild embarrassment, I'm with a bunch of cattle ranchers. It's like, you know what? I'm going to deal with that embarrassment and they're just going to have to deal with the fact that I'm not going to eat a steak. Okay. So the, um, 
we we you know in order to have a decent life, sometimes some people on the other side are going to have to be uncomfortable, and that's how we're going to do this. And if if she would like a private session, she can book that because you know you talk about this all the time. One of the things that comes up a lot are people living in an unclean environment, and yeah. we talk about how important it is for the environment to support the goal and to work harder on the environment than yourself. And the people say, "Well, I can't because blah blah blah." And then you've mentioned that they can have a session because you look at the personalities of the people living in that environment. You you don't just give a pat answer, right. just like you can't give a pat answer to this. Yes. The thing is, is do you notice though, or at least in, in the people I know, there seems to be a lot of conflicts between families, especially you know, a lot of times mother daughter, especially. Oh, what this is the most amazing species, AJ. It truly is. There, there is no other species where the parents are just all twisted up and want to influence what the mating choices of the children are. Like that is truly of all of the things that anthropologists will say distinguishes humans. Like, well, we talk and we use fire and we use money and we have languages. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. But the big thing is the mother-in-law. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, this is actually fascinating. And it doesn't, it, it just shows you how deep and sophisticated the cost-benefit analytic machinery is inside the human. It is by far the deepest, most futuristic. A uh, subtle thing that you can imagine, all the way to mom following her daughter around or her son around and looking over the mate choices and, and giving their thumbs up or thumbs down to the point where in some places throughout history, they dictated the decision. Yeah. F- that, matchmaking, fiddle on the roof. They, they you were told who to marry. Yeah. And that, 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 that what makes that a beautiful story is that cultural transformation that is starting to happen. As that, as that, we're starting to break free from that onerous and absurd process. But that process had some reason for it in times past, but obviously today it's archaic. Did they have these problems in the Stone Age, mother and daughter? Undoubtedly, this didn't. This didn't just arrive, you know, in the last six thousand years. No, this mothers-in-law have been have been problematic for a long time. Yeah, this is this question was the lady's actual mother, though, her by, yes, you know, I know, yeah. yeah, there's no end to it. She criticizes her husband. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. There you go. Uh, anyway, thank but you. Her house so is the- big enough. <laughs> oh boy it's it, it, but it you know it just seems that almost all the problems that we encounter are caused by disagreeable people well a high percentage of them it, that is very true agent that's okay. super important concept to identify can we start breeding people to get that disagreeableness out of them strangely enough we've been selecting for people that have been more cooperative clearly for the last fifty thousand years that's why you can now live in cities and in nice neighborhoods and not have people bash each other over the head and grab their purses, okay? It is precisely, we are literally, the skeleton of humans are thinner than they were 50,000 years ago. The skulls are thinner. Why? Because there's been less head bashing. So you're right. We, we, we are actually have been selectively breeding for that, but it's not fast enough. <laughs> exactly. Disagreeable people often end up with agreeable people, right? Because yes. two disagreeables wouldn't marry, would they? Not very often. Not very. You, almost, you don't often see that. Yeah. Well, I feel so bad for the people. Right. 
married to one. Okay, so the next question, Dr. Lyle, you've talked about how depression is related to unexpected failure feedback in five main domains. Can you talk about anxiety and the best way to overcome it? I've heard you talk about hyperconscientiousness and overestimating the likelihood of a mistake or bad outcome. I'm so curious if you would suggest that someone manage their anxious or depressed, how they would manage their depressive or anxious feelings. I'm a clinical psychologist and often use your words with my patients, but I'm looking for ideas about how they can overcome those feelings. I've used your running in place for panic and it works great. I'm just looking for any other tricks or books you can suggest to help me help others. Thanks for all you do. Um, I would say that the most important thing that we do for anxiety is maneuver to what I call a position of power. Okay. So, um, you can, you can imagine if you are, you're running a big business. I remember uh, I stupidly did not invest in Amazon, uh, when, when Jeff Bezos was named like times man of the year in 1997, I think it was. And Jennifer Morano, uh, Alan's wife, Dr. Jennifer Morano, uh, was just jabbering all about Jeff Bezos and, and what she had learned about him and how what an amazing guy he was. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, and I remember reading uh, something that I think that she had me read, which was, it said, well, Bezos was saying, this is the, they got this business model and They've got seven months worth of venture capital in the bank, and that should be enough. And as a sort of a conservative human, I'm like, seven months in the bank is all you got? That thing's going down. <laughs> it's going to, they're, they're going to die. You know, there's so many bad things can happen that you, you won't necessarily get it together in seven months. Well, it turns out Jeff Bezos is a effectively a business genius and he knew exactly what he was doing and he felt like he was in a position of power with seven months of money in the bank or else he would have sold some more stock to 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 grab you know 17 months of money in the bank. but the point is he was comfortable i wasn't comfortable with what his situation was therefore i didn't invest in him and i blew it <laughs> all right but the concept at the, at, the, at the heart of this is what I call a position of power. So a position of power is that you have figured out the worst case scenario and you figured out what you were going to do. I think uh, uh, Mr. Bezos knew that, that there would be other moves that they could make, you know what I mean? But he felt like they were in very, very comfortable circumstances based on uh, what, he had, what he had charted out. He and his team had figured out how things were likely to go. That... Um, on the other side of that would be anxiety, uncomfortable. We, be, we better do something else and we better do something different. We better put ourselves in a position where we are safe from a catastrophe. Okay. So this is, uh, this is the best thing that I know for anxiety generally is to be, uh, to have worked out for the things that cause that person uh, to be anxious, to essentially have worked out uh, uh, positions of power. And so that's one of the things, this is just a trivial uh, uh, trivial notion here, which is that one of the things that I have not uncommonly recommended to people uh, that had a fair amount of anxiety is you need to make a higher priority out of saving money. In other words, that, well, a lot of times highly anxious people are overestimating the worst case scenario. And so as a result of that, 
they are feeling that creepy feeling that if a bunch of things go wrong, that they could actually lose their house, lose their, you know, situation, whatever it is, have to take the kids out of private school, whatever it is that they, that has them worried uh, about this. And so my attitude is, okay, you know, part of your mind is running scenarios that say we're fine, but part of your mind, the, the more conservative, uh, anxious part of your mind is, is thinking that maybe we're not safe. Now, we know that for uh, a lot a lot of highly conscientious folks, there's no way to get them safe. But if you've got, uh, I have a way of thinking about saving money, which is that there are a, quite a number, most of life's uh, unexpected problems uh, cost about $1,000 or less. Okay, so you got a car repair. Okay, you need a, you need a root canal. In other words, there are, that's a thousand dollars. If you have a thousand dollars saved, that actually buffers you against a lot of unexpected trouble. And so, a lot of people, you know, that's an important thousand dollars that they save. Uh, Ten thousand dollars is really quite a bit of insurance against trouble. So, for an awful lot of families, if they have an overhead of, you know, four or five thousand dollars a month, ten thousand dollars a month in savings is a couple of months that there can be fairly big trouble and they can be okay. The um, and then I will say that a hundred thousand dollars will get you out of almost anything. So uh, all kinds of trouble could take take place. Somebody could have a major illness and be out of work and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, that's actually, you know, Stone Age people didn't have anything even remotely similar to $100,000 worth of time to have the crisis resolved. And so, but there's people, I had a woman that uh, I talked to that was highly conscientious and she said, I didn't stop worrying until my husband and I had a million dollars in the bank. I, okay. She goes, I have to tell you, there was something magic about that number. When when I got that much money in the bank, I quit waking up at three in the morning. Fascinating. Super interesting. And I can tell you, uh, I know that person well, and that person is an extraordinarily, you know, 95th percentile conscientious individual. And so that's what it took inside that nervous system. So the but the it's not just money. It's also just the general principle of, um, you know, how, where do you have to stand with respect to any objective feedback as you for you as an employee? So it may be, for example, that that uh, a, a smart thing to do is to get to work 15 minutes early. Nobody else does, and so if you do that, it becomes clear to everybody that that is you, and as a result, uh, you get that reputation, and that reputation would be solid within six or eight weeks, uh, even if you've, you know, you've been nothing other than somebody that's on time. It's like, wow, do a little bit better than that, and a, as a result, buffer yourself against, you know, some theoretical layoff. This is um, that is the principle that's involved. And once again, uh, this person is a psychologist. Um, you know, we're speaking large to, to everybody, which is that, uh, that, that is what it is that I would say. Another thing that I would say, uh, so in other words, that's what I do. Whenever somebody's coming to me and they're very anxious, the, um, uh, if it's a physical panicky anxiety, we talk about the running in place, but if it's, but if it's this other kind of anxiety, it's like, well, I'm really worried about this. I'm worried, worried about that. 
It's like, okay, we have to walk down through the worst case scenario and imagine what those worst case scenario would be and then figure out what we can do to mitigate that or what we would do if those things happen. So that's that's that will calm the nervous system down once we have thought through an action plan and we have an in-principle solution. Okay? Now, I also have a colleague by the name of Dr. Laura Bruce that has been on the show that is a an expert in anxiety. So uh, as the psychologist could uh, uh, ring up Dr. Bruce and talk it over with her for half an hour, uh, might be a useful thing to hear. Uh, uh, she might have additional things, additional concepts that, that I'm not thinking of. Uh, but this has been, anxiety is a natural signaling device of a threat. A threat means that we have a potential loss over a resource. We need to identify what that is and then figure out how it is that we are going to um, reduce the likelihood of that being true or also plan for if that worst case scenario happens, how we will manage that. Okay. Uh, basically, pretty much the only resource that we can't somehow get to a position of power over is your health. Uh, everything else we can. Your reputation, we can get to a position of power over. Everybody thinks you're terrible because you did something and you followed your conscience or you made a mistake or what? It's fine. We can repair that. But we we can live without it too. We we don't we we don't we aren't going to starve as a result of that. The uh, oh well, I lost my license as a lawyer and it's a disaster. And I did this thing and it, I thought it was fine and they disbarred me. Okay, you still got a brain. You still got a lot of IQ. You still got a willingness to work. You're not going to starve to death. So the point is, is that we are we might have to give up a house and give up a private school for the kids and give up a fancy vacation on the beach in Maui that we took every year. Fine. You can live without it. People live without those things forever. Okay. The one thing that you can't live without is your health. That's the one thing. So that's the one thing where, you know, we want to be doing what we can do to support our health. Uh, that's the closest thing that we can get to a position of power. Have health insurance. Fine. For whatever good that might do us which it might to have health insurance and then treat your body, you know, like, like the, what, like the only resource that you can't get a position of power over. Okay. That you must treat it well. And, and, uh, uh, that, that way that will give you all that you can get out of this, which is the peace of mind that comes with knowing that you did a really good job. That you did your best. That that's all I really think through and utilize in my analysis of, of anybody's anxiety situation. Um, I have talked to Laura a few times and I can tell you that uh, it's one of those things where you find out that uh, other people are better at you than some things. <laughs> and uh, I think it was the 1992-93 uh, NBA Finals, Charles Barkley, who's one of the finest players that has ever played the game, was against Michael Jordan. And he said, you know what? It was the only time in my life I looked down that court and I realized there was a man on that court that was better than me. Because I never had that feeling before. Well, I have that feeling a lot uh, on the court, not elsewhere. The uh, but one of those places is talking to Dr. Laura Bruce about anxiety. So she she's uh, ingenious and creative and very, very sophisticated. And so if you talk to me and do a consult and I don't fix it for you, Thank goodness I've got a backup plan for you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I've talked to her. She's brilliant. The thing yes. is, is you have to do something like you have to participate in your own recovery. And I think people are looking for some magic wand or pill and they don't realize that like they actually have to take some action and participate. Yes. All good. There's, there's usually a way to help. Yeah. All it's, right. It's so disabling. So many people seem to have anxiety that I talk to. Sure. In, in, well, we in, have yeah. a high conscientious group, AJ. That's not an accident. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yes. Okay. So this next Dougathon question, I was a professional chef and caterer for 16 years and loved doing that. During the time I watched Forks Over Knives, I became vegan and whole food plant-based and I found Dr. Lyle's lectures online and never looked back in 2020 during COVID. All my cooking jobs ended and I since have been working in collegiate property management. I like my job, but not as much as cooking. I really miss being in the kitchen every day. I've recently given an opportunity to cook for a community of 40 college sorority girls in a chapter house where I'm the house director. Here's my problem. I'm wondering, is there any way I can accept the chef job and provide the girls a small amount of healthy meat each week. I'm not worried about eggs and dairy. I can avoid eggs as I would not be cooking breakfast. And for lunch and dinner, I would source plant-based dairy items. But meat, most of the girls in the sorority house don't eat much, if any meat anymore, which is great. But for those who do, I would probably have to provide three dinners a week that had chicken or fish or something considered meat, not plant-based alternatives. I've heard you say in the past, your thought, you thought it was possible to have a healthy diet with some meat in it if kept to a small minimum. What do you think the percentage would be? I'm torn between trying to make this opportunity work and saying no to a job because I'm just not a good fit for it. I think it would be an interesting challenge to help college girls move towards healthier eating, or would it? For certain, I know it would be, I would not be allowed to do strictly plant-based kitchen, but maybe I could make it healthy enough. I'd appreciate your opinion or any ideas for experiments or strategies you might suggest. Beautiful question. Again, uh, just for fun, we get down to the heart of the matter. Okay. So the heart of the matter is the conflict of including animal foods in this thing, knowing that they are not optimally healthy for the kids. Okay. So the, um, and I would say that the following is true. I, I have a friend of mine who wrote a book about veganism and is the most militant girl I've ever seen. <laughs> she, she just is. She's just militant. And there is no way she could do that. That would be impossible uh, for my friend Rose. Okay. The, um, but this, this gal and I, AJ couldn't do it. AJ's got too, too much animal rights, you know, uh, stuff is inside of her mind. And the same thing with Rose. So I know people that could not do that. And I know people that could. And so the, um, so this all, so this, once again, these are individual differences inside of us. And I don't, if you, if one reason you wouldn't do this is because you would be calculating the judgment of the plant, the, the whole foods, plant-based animal rights community, but you are not actually dead center inside of it. You are somewhere where, you know, John McDougall has spent most of his life. So John McDougall understands the, the animal rights thing. And so does John Mackey, but they're, they are not it isn't, it isn't right in the center of their feeling states where it is in, in Egypt. Okay. 
and it is in, in my friend Rose, and it is in many other people. It's not dead center in Allen's, in Allen Goldhammer's, okay? So these are, it is in Michael Clapper. Michael Clapper wouldn't come anywhere near that, okay? Now, Michael Clapper, AJ, and my friend Rose are not morally superior humans to Alan and McDougal and me, okay? So I would look at this thing, and I would, uh, if, if I were you, based on if we transported my psychology into this, I would say, yeah, I would do it, okay? I would do it because, you know, I'd be, I'd have a slightly creepy feeling, but I, but my attitude would be, I'm, I'm actually helping introduce these people and morph them, okay, towards a thing. So in other words, this is a, what we would call evolution, not revolution. And so uh, if I wanted to do it, and I liked doing it, and this was a part of it that I felt slightly yucky about, but. The, uh, but I felt like overall this was going to be a positive thing. Yeah, I, I would be able to do this. I don't know. I, I'm no cook. I don't know. That, but the point is, is, if I was a cook, I could I could do that. Only you know whether or not this is something that could could fly inside of your nervous system. So um, the, and that is a that is so individual that there is no right or wrong answer. That is that is sitting inside of your unique psychology okay my my friend rose even if me saying this she would be incensed <laughs> but she can't help herself okay and and she uh the points she makes whenever we talk just they they bang me over the head i cannot argue with anything that she ever says and she always says those animals want to live just as much as we do why are we you know just like and it there there is uh it doesn't matter to her whether it's a fish or anything else. It's all got the whole psychology is in there. And it's it's basically like a mothering, nurturing psychology that just says, hey, these are all living things, etc. I understand that. Okay, I, I completely grasp and I have no argument with that. All I can tell you is, is that not every human's personality is built to see it that way. And my sweet friend Rose just thinks that they are by God. Well, I think she's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, does Linda Middlesworth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rose and uh, Rose is a is a is a is a tougher animal than Linda, but they have the same feeling states. So I understand exactly where you're all coming from. And and uh I I actually uh am completely supportive of that. I just simply recognize that that is not necessarily the nature of humanity and that you guys are sitting out there in the top 10 percentile of some mythical bell curve. And the, this person that's asking the question might be at the 70th percentile of that. And you know what I mean? The guy, the duck, duck nation people are down at the bottom 10 percent. They don't even think about it. It's like, so, and you're not going to talk them into that. They just are who they are, amazingly enough. It just is the way it is. And um, so anyway, that's my answer to the question is, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking this opportunity at all. You could also, if, it's, if the opportunity has been given to you, you could absolutely run it as an experiment. And then at the end of a year, if you're like, this is, I feel morally haywire, then get out of it. 
know, so, uh, but I, that, but I have a feeling that you're sensing that it may feel very productive and bring back uh, a part of your life that actually gave you a lot of satisfaction. And it can be an educational process and it can be really, you know, we don't have to be doctrinaire or, or pushy about this, but it can be, it could be a very artistic educational process for those girls. And uh, anyway, it could be very interesting. Interesting opportunity. No in principle reason not to do it. The only in principle reason not to do it is that if who it is that you are says that you can't. That's interesting. And then also like her circumstance, whether or not other jobs are available and her financial status would take, because if she could get a vegan job that paid just as much or more, she might prefer that. That's right, AJ. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to meet Rose. Is this a book that's coming out soon? Um, it, yeah, it's already been out for a while. So are, are you allowed to tell us the name or? God, I, I it's something like, uh, I think it's No Bull, it's something like that. Well, does she? I'm my lot. Can I ask her last name and I could Google sure. it? Yeah, Donato, D O N A T O. Maybe she'd like to be on the show. We sounds oh, like she probably would. And, and you know, everybody that, uh, <laughs> once you meet Rose, you'll realize, oh, that's what that's what Doug's talking about. She's just tougher than hell. I can't wait. Well, it sounds like you, you always talk about this thing called the egocentric bias and the yes. fact that we, Rose and Linda, feel that way. We think everybody should feel that way. Like, of why course. don't they feel this way towards animals? I, I understand that, AJ. It's just yeah. how it is. Well, I would be a veterinarian today if it wasn't for this, because that is the reason I became vegan is I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do animal research. Oh, I, I, I got it. I understand. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yes. she sounds amazing. Thank you. Okay. So this question is from a lady who's 75 years old. She's a woman and five foot two and about 140 to 143 pounds, but she was 153 pounds when she started whole food plant-based in 2020. Yes. She has kept lowering her caloric density to keep up even a very slight downward trend. She walks an hour every morning. She has fruit for breakfast, a salad with beans or potato for lunch, and for dinner, steamed vegetables and rice or potato. She does not eat desserts or nuts, but will have an, av an avocado now and then on her salad and sometimes a veggie sandwich. She has an underactive thyroid and has been on Synthroid for 30 years. Her high weight at the time was 215 pounds and gradually it went down over the years. She wants to know, am I a hopeless case who will never drop the last 20 pounds because I'm not sure if I can further lower the caloric density of my diet? I, I think that you are a hopeless case. That my, my guess is that if I were, if you were giving me that, uh, if, I, if you're telling it to me straight, and I assume that she is, that is an A plus uh, program. So you're you're living in an A plus program. It's outstanding, and I think that you're you're probably sunk by some you know essentially a little dysfunction in that thyroid or however it is that that works. So you're um, I don't I don't know I don't I don't think that we would do anything else in that to, to that diet to try to maneuver around us. I. I just don't see it. So the uh, just continue to do what you're doing. And we may find that you are 138 pounds a year from now. We don't, we actually don't know. But all I know is that what you're eating is superbly healthy. Uh, your hour walk in the morning is a good solid amount of exercise. That's a, that's a, that's a lot. 
but it's excellent for you at your age that, that you can walk that far and that, you know, essentially do an hour. Um, well then, uh, you get in, yeah, this is one of these things where I used to tell people that if you're genetically, you're, you're handicapped here, that you have to do A work to get a B. And there, there are people that are built that way. And we see some of those people, you know, if this person who was five foot two was ever 200 pounds, that tells me that they're in the upper two or three percentile for the, the fatness, thickness genes. And so, you know, five to one, 140 uh, at 75 years old and eating healthy, uh, I give you an A plus for execution and, and you get exactly what it looks like. You get a B for observable results. But if we went inside your cells and looked at your health, you, we'd be seeing A plus. So, you know, you're... Uh, I don't consider that hopeless. I just consider that that's that's the deal. That's the deal you got. You got you got to be born in in the century that you did. You get to live in a nice free country. We don't have to starve to death. We, you know, we're not some war torn thing being ravaged by you know tuberculosis or Ebola or anything like. Look, all kinds of things have turned out great. One of them is, doggone it, how why did I wind up with the top three or four percentile of of thick genes? And this is this is where I'm stuck. It is what it is, and uh, I, I see no way to uh, intelligently figure out how how I would improve that. I think you're doing a great job. Do you ever recommend to someone like her? Because I've heard you recommend this to somebody who wants to like maybe run an experiment. I don't know for three or four weeks where she lowers the caloric density to see if she's able to tolerate it and like it, and if it makes a difference. You know, I th there's a there's a time and place to be thinking about this. This person's doing a heck of a good job. This is um, this is like right on target as to where it is that I would be aiming. Uh, a lot of people would be coming in at 100 calories a pound, higher calorie density than this. It would be on very healthy diets, but I would be looking at like hmm, maybe we could move this down a notch, and we might subtly wind up losing six pounds in the next year. Okay. The uh, this this gal, all I can tell you is this is this is outstanding work. I wouldn't be looking to move this needle, and um, and so let's you know let's call it a day, and wherever it lands, it lands. Okay, come live with me. I'll lower it for you. <laughs> but but the food's so good here. You've eaten here. You know that it's good, even though it's low CD. It's delicious. sure. And it's plentiful. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, it's just, it, people seem to be so unhappy when they have excess weight, even if it's not a lot. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's, yeah. uh, that's, uh, we're, we're very, very concerned about these things. And that's part of our nature. Yeah. Okay. we got two more questions. I think all we're right. going to get through them all. So this next one, they're Dr. Lyle. Okay. Um, have women been tricked by feminism to falsely believe that women can and should compete with men on every level? As a mother of a young child, I struggle to compete with men or women with no kids or caretaking responsibilities. I feel resentful and unfair for being passed over for promotion, but deep down, I know a fancy job title wouldn't make me any happier than spending time with my son. From an EP point of view, do women who struggle with a work-life balance have been pursuing the wrong goals all along and suffering for nothing? Um, wonderful question. And I, again, the 
and just as we're always going to wind up looking at this, is that we we have to look at every individual from an individual set of circumstances. And we have to get down to the part of the matter, which is the nature of the conflicts. So within ourselves, when the conflicts are within ourselves um, about what to do with our time and energy, then the, the, the issue is, is that we have trade-offs. So if I get the tofu and rice and vegetables and salad at, at, uh, at East West Cafe, then I can't get the vegan burrito. I'm not gonna get them both. So I, I'm hoping to guess that I'm gonna be happy about that as happy as I think I'm gonna be. And so the, we, we would naturally want to rise in hierarchies you know, to, to, the, to the level of our competence and to be rewarded and recognized and therefore hold as much esteem as possible. On the other hand, you can't do that and spend the time to be a good mom. Okay, you can't, you can't do them both. So guess what? You're going to have to figure out a compromise. There are trade-offs. And so the, um, this is, and the nature of that conflict is, it's sometimes tricky to figure out what's the best trade-off. And, uh, and sometimes you don't get to run 50 little experiments on either side of it. So if you're going to get, if you're going to aim at that promotion, you're going to have to sacrifice a bunch of stuff at home for the next year or two, and then really try to get it. And then if you do get it, then there's more responsibility. And now you're working 10 hours a week over past the, the clock uh, in order to keep that position and then swim with those fish. It's like, Mm, was this all worth it? Well, we, you know, in order to even find out, we have to go do it in order to see what it feels like to be there and see what it's like to have another 15 or 20,000 a year or whatever the, 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 the next grade up is. So this, uh, unlike the, the experiment that AJ was just talking about with the weight, like, hey, see if you can do the lower calorie density for a while, see what it does for you. You can check it out. Then you can always go back to where you are now. Yeah, those are beautiful little experiments that we get to run inside of our own lives in terms of our own sort of body and health management. But when it comes to dealing in hierarchical situations, work situations, et cetera, we don't get to make those uh, choices and then take them back very easily. So, uh, so therefore, you know, we have to just use our intuition, run our internal experiments. Uh, in our imagination, look at what it seems to be doing for other people, try to absorb all that information, then, then make whatever decisions that, that your mind best comes up with. She has a broader philosophical and sociological question, which is that, you know, have women been sold something in some ways that doesn't really fit uh, a lot of them? And I would say, yeah, I think that I think there's truth in that. Um, women are different. Every single one of them. Every single one of them is a unique individual, and so they're not only unique as personalities; their circumstances are also unique. So, I have met women who were determined to climb hierarchies, quote, compete with the men, not really making any kind of political or feminist statement, but they just feel. Like they absolutely are feel completely like they should be treated on equal footing and are willing 
to do whatever those men are doing in order to climb some hierarchy, whether it's in medicine or law or business or anything else. And they, they have either talent and or talent and energy and drive. And for them to be a, a wife and mother and business mogul to them, it's like, okay, you know, I am not going to take second place at the, at the table of the vice presidents. And so guess what? There's going to be very, very significant sacrifices when it comes to the other aspects of your life that have potential for enjoyment. That's true. That is how that's going to go. Okay. So uh, such an individual may very well put great strain on relationship with their with uh, significant others. And it also may be um, effectively impossible to be as, as uh, integrated in with and nurturing of your children as you might enjoy. Children will be fine whether you're there or not. But the point is, is that your life experience may not be as good as it would have been. Oh, well, you know, you're, this is just guesswork, but I can tell you, I've known people that their attitude is, hey, there's no way I'm not going to go for the flag. I'm going to, whether they be male or female. To tell those people that they can't compete, hey, Tootsie, you know what I mean? No, this is for you. You should be at home with your husband. You should be at home with your kids. You don't need this position. Well, that's BS. And that that's what the women's movement was significantly about. If you do have that drive, for God's sakes, you know, there shouldn't be anything structural anywhere that would stop any woman from giving her best to society and competing, you know, in whatever domain there is. Fine. Like I have, of course, that that was a needed cultural awakening. The, uh, however, there can be an underlying, it's, it's kind of like in a riptide, there, there can be an undertow there that you don't see, which is that women are, uh, all women are exposed to this notion that that's sort of how they ought to be. And it's like, yeah, but it may not be you. So those are, those are kind of unusual women that have that kind of motivation. You don't have to have that kind of motivation. You may absolutely be a person that, that it's, it's not nearly as important for you to compete in those hierarchies and that you have a nurturing and child raising instinct or romantic instinct that you've got to put more time and energy uh, into, into these other you know, domestic relationships. Completely legitimate. And I think that the, uh, the sort of women's movement and feminism can discount that very substantially as if those people are not enlightened. Okay, well, or that, that, that perspective is not enlightened. Well, that perspective is perfectly enlightened. Okay, that is, a, that is the respect for the individual differences in people. Okay, so... A woman is not a woman is not a woman. It's an individual is an individual. And so the um, your job in life is to do what? Where did we start this today? Figure out what it is that I really want. Okay. What do I think that I most want? Okay. That's where we need to get, get focused. That's a very complicated question because we are taking inputs and we are maneuvering in a very complicated esteem arena 
status and political arenas that it's like, well, if I don't really push, then other people don't think that I'm this. It's like, whoa, careful. What are the processes that you really, uh, really like? I have a young lady who was in very competitive academically, super smart, and achieved a great deal, and then decided, you know what? I have to tell you, the truth is, is what I really love to do is garden. That's actually what I really love to do. <laughs> and so she spends most of her time gardening, you know what I mean? And it has circumstances where she can do that. And I completely and totally respect that. There would be people potentially surrounding her that would say, well, you should be some enormously successful, big shot, you know, professional, which is certainly within her capabilities. But inside of her soul, she loves to garden. And my attitude is, well, then for goodness sakes, garden, okay? You got to focus on what's most important to you. So the answer to that question is yes. There are always people out there and movements and political ideologies and all kinds of influences that are, they've got their own agendas that may be legitimate or may not be legitimate, but it doesn't matter. The truth is, is they can create turbulence in the, the lake of your life. And it can be hard for you to figure out exactly what might be best for you. But we tried to get to the heart of the matter. And the fundamental thing is, what's the most important thing for me? And if we can't figure it out, then we have to run the smartest experiments that we can that can hopefully be reversed. This is, you know, one of the hardest, you know, there are there are some decisions that are big and that you sort of can't take back. And so uh, that that's there is what sits under the problem of conflict is my mantra, never make a big decision when a smaller decision will do. If you get forced to have to make this, a big decision, then you do. And then we have to hope that you make a good one uh, in the face of uncertain evidence. But if we can make small decisions, then those are good. I love a small decision. So our our, our lady with the uh, with the sorority or whatever this is, the girls thing, it's like, you know, if I could get a contract to do it for three months, that would be even better. You know, if you, if you work that into your life somehow. The, uh, but you probably can't probably is impractical to even be thinking about. But we could do a year experiment. That year experiment, uh, we have to imagine how we're going to live with that experiment probably probably pretty well. But if you're AJ or Rose, you wouldn't. You'd be like, no. In fact, it's offensive to even think about it. <laughs> okay? So these are, uh, so th this is, you know, one of, one of the, uh, one of the great uh, philosophical uh, realizations is we've got to try to know ourselves and if you don't know yourself which a lot of times you don't you have to run little experiments to help you learn and that's all we can do well you always say never make a big decision when a small decision will do that's right you got it when dr goldhammer talks about jennifer renewing his contract every year is that like a joke or does is that like really true totally a joke okay yeah. all right <laughs> that's funny Okay, our last question has to do with, with private school. I'm a highly conscientious nutcase, 
I'm highly agreeable and a very intellectual mom to two boys, age six and 10. My sister plans to send her boys to private school. The tuition has skyrocketed in a year will cost her $26,000 per kid, which is a stretch for her. I'm feeling jealous that her boys could have a much better experience, more resources, more status than my boys. What do you think about the value of private prep school versus public school for middle school and high school? Um, the way I feel about it is that um, if you're Joe Montana and you don't want your kids in a public school being sort of harassed by everybody in the sun, and have the paparazzi out there and there's no guard gate you know what i'm saying you just don't you just don't want the stress uh you don't want them kidnapped and being held for ransom then you need to put them in a private school for goodness sakes that makes sense to me yeah and that makes sense to me if you're the if you're the ceo of google and, and like you don't want your kids kidnapped harassed etc cetera, etc cetera. you those fish ought to be swimming together so the, the fancy neurosurgeon's kid, you know, is sitting next to the fancy CEO's kid, is sitting next to, you know, the fancy uh, oil heiress's kid. It's like, that's fine. Those people can all play together. Therefore, when the kidnapper's trying to figure out who to get, they're like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. We got 167 of them here. Which one are we going to take? <laughs> okay. It's like your kid isn't sticking out like a sore thumb. So there's a there's a time and a place for private school, and that's the time and place that would make sense to me. Um, you could also be in a situation where, for some for some strange geographic, unusual set of circumstances, that you live in a nice area, but the school that your child would go to has a really dangerous element to it. Okay, so. It just so happens that you didn't think that through when you bought the house, uh, but whatever it is, you know, it's it's a problem and it, it could be a bad problem. I mean, this is going to be rare if that's going to be true, but it could happen. Yeah, and, and that point, you know, if you can afford it and it makes sense and you don't want to move, it's like, OK, then send your kids to private school. But if we are sending our children to private school because we are wanting them to, quote, have a better education, we have, we have walked into a false premise, okay? We are making a mistake. Uh, the, they will not have a better education. They might have a more, more enjoyable education. They probably won't. Probably will not have a more enjoyable education. The, uh, they might, but I don't think so. The, uh, it's unlikely, and I don't think there's any evidence to suggest the kids enjoy their private schools more than the kids enjoy. Usually the private schools are pushy and they're riding hard on the kids because they're trying to get fancy test scores so that they can brag to the next generation of parents about how great the scores are and how our kids are so smart and how we do so well. When the truth of the matter is, is that uh, everybody's wasting their time because all the test scores and academic ability is all just be being shaken out genetically. So the um, the all all the pushing and prep and all that quote education is amounting to zero. So actually, that's not quite fair. It is responsible for what's known as two percent of the variance in the outcome. In other words, it's about as close to zero as you could possibly ever discover by measurement. Okay. 
It's as if the difference, if you went to a private school and then you went on to the university, your GPA was 3.6, but if you went to the public school, it was 3.59 on average. So that's what it looks like. So the IE of no practical significance at all. So that is the biggest reason. Uh, people also want to send their child, children to private school so they can brag to other people that they have sent their children to private school, demonstrating that they can afford to waste the money, which is known as a Zahavian handicap, uh, named after uh, the, the great Israeli biologist, Ahmed Zahavi, uh, that explains that people and animals like to waste resources to demonstrate their gene quality. So this is why wealthy people do the, a lot of the wacky things they do. They don't really enjoy them particularly. That isn't the point. The point of having a $400,000 Rolls-Royce automobile is not that it's a better ride than the Mercedes that they could have bought or that it's safer than the Lexus that they could have bought for a fifth of the price. No, the point was to show that they could waste $300,000. Because if you can waste $300,000, you must be incredible genetically in order to have the ability to command that many resources. This is what a peacock's tail is. Peacock's tail is showing the peahens, look at what a big, long, complicated, bright colored tail I have. I'm waving to the predators. I'm waving this tail in front of their face. And yet here I am still alive. I must be one hell of a specimen to be able to handicap myself with a tail like this. I must be one hell of a specimen to handicap myself by having my children in private school, okay? This is, this is a major motivation uh, that is unrecognized, even though people know it intuitively, they have not identified it and they don't understand their own motivation. So this is the, uh, the heart and soul of kind of counseling work that I do and supportive work I do is to try to get to the heart of the matter. And try to understand what is it that I want? And sometimes it's useful to know, boy, if I want some of that, why am I wanting that? And, and then to follow our way through the conflicts around decisions like this. This is a private school, unless you've got a Joe Montana situation, uh, or you've got a neighborhood juxtaposition situation, um, there is no reason to ever waste any money like this. Uh, uh, for the vast majority of people whose children are in private school, this money is being completely and totally wasted. Children are not getting a better education. They're not having a better experience. And um, they may be having as good of an experience, which is fine. Okay, so that, that's fine. And if you can afford it and you just soon have a little extra safety and uh, so forth, that's fine. Or a little more control over the teachers because the teachers are not you know, they're not a member of a teacher's union and they're not defended by tenure. So truth is, is that if I go in and bitch about my kid's grade, that teacher's going to be shaking in his or her boots and they're probably going to roll over for me, okay, et cetera. So there's a, there's some reasons why, but I will submit to you that there are two huge reasons why most people send their children to private school. They are, number one, they fear that, they're, that their children's competitors will be getting an advantage by going to try private school, uh, scholastically and developmentally. That is false. Those schools will promote that. 
they probably don't know. In other words, the schools, of course, don't know anything about education and education science, not surprisingly. And so, you know, what cardiologist 25 years ago knew anything about diet and what was causing the heart to go, go bad? None. <laughs> okay. The, the, the Caldwell Alcestein's not a cardiologist, and neither is Dean Ornish. Those two guys had to come in from the sideways to educate the world's cardiologists, for goodness sakes. You don't have a world-class cardiologist that came out and explained this. Okay. So it's no, not surprising that the educators and the PhDs from Harvard and Education don't know what I'm telling you, which is that there's no value to it at all. So Bill Gates thought, oh, well, we got a lower class size. No, you don't. Turns out class size has no correlation coefficient at all with what happens to kids' scholastic abilities. None. Okay. So there is no quality of education issue here. You're watching trees grow in your backyard when you're watching your children's intellectual development. They, you're watching the grass grow. You are not causing it to grow. All you got to do is have decent water out there, and the decent water is the milieu that they that they are growing up in. So, the two reasons people, the chief reasons people do this: number one, fear that their children will be outcompeted by people that got a better education. Huge mistake, not true. The second is, I I fear the status loss of not wasting the money when other people are, and then I'm looked down as a second class parent that had second-class parenting credentials, second-class ability to afford this, and therefore I don't have a very good peacock tail. I have a little drab tail, okay? Okay, I understand that. Okay, so uh, I understand that that can be painful for people. I'm ornery enough, and so is Alan, that our attitude is everybody can pound sand in their ignorance. I'm not wasting my money. I'm way too cheap. <laughs> and uh, I would encourage you to think the same. Uh, if you uh, uh, if, if, if that kind of money isn't money that you can easily waste, then for goodness sakes, don't waste it. Dr. Lyle, I don't know if you know this, I did go to private school at one point. And um, with my anxious nervous system, I, I kind of liked it better. I just felt like safer and closer to the teachers. I mean, I'm sure it was very expensive for my parents, sure. but um, I, 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 I public school was just like so big. You know, yeah, and you know what? This is this is abs absolutely like uh, completely legitimate. So, in other words, it's but it wouldn't be so much about private school versus public school. It would be one school versus another school. Okay, so in other words, it's a it, it's really more of an issue of what you know. If you want, if you're looking at your kid's experience, there's it's very difficult to know what experience might be better for that child. Um, and, but if a child can tell you blatantly, oh man, do I like that quiet thing with fewer people around, et cetera, then, and if you can afford it, then, hey, why not give your kid a quote, better experience? Most of the time, we're going to find that kids don't care. In other words, you might've been a more anxious kid and uh, in some important ways, but most kids are happy as clams going to public school. You know, they're just, they're just completely fine with it. And so the, uh, I, I love public school. I, I the idea of going to a private school to me is just like ludicrous. Well, like, why would I do this? There's no, I'm going to go to where all my friends are and everybody that I played ball with and, you know, everybody I knew. There was one real private school in Long Beach. I can't remember. St. Anthony's. Okay. 
was the one private school that some kids went to, but everybody else is in public school and and we never even thought twice about it. So, yeah. The question asker says she's fairly convinced thanks to evolutionary psychology and behavioral genetics that the school choice won't change the child's IQ, but she worries that they might miss out on a better experience. Yeah, and that better experience could be coming from all different angles. So that that school might have, you know, a, a more drama, a better drama coach or more resources for artsy things and your kid might like that. In other words, you have to look at those things. The private schools that I've been most closely knowledgeable about have not been any fun at all. They've been driven, competitive, push those kids, load them down with homework because the teachers are operating under a lot of pressure to, to do what they think is the only thing that's going to help everybody survive, which is to, quote, get those kids the top test scores and get them into Harvard. It's like, that's what private school experience is for a hell of a lot of kids. That is not a better experience than going to Lakewood High School. Okay, so yeah, these are individual decisions, but you know, let's let's clear up the mistakes, which are that uh, it ain't a better education. You, you said you enjoyed going to public school, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard from a lady named Monica that said she used to be friends with you and Dr. Goldhammer, that you guys were so smart, you didn't even have to go to class, that the teacher actually told you to go play basketball and that she'd give you an A. Is that true? <laughs> that might have been true for Alan. It was never true for me, but that that was true for Alan because Alan was such a pain in the ass in class that anybody just wanted to get rid of him. So that does surprise me. <laughs> Oh my god! I, you know, I think they should just make a full-length feature movie about your guys' life and friendship. I, I just think it'd be a, an amazing comedy. Yeah, I don't think it's that interesting, but whatever. We, we, the, it, it's fun. It's been, it's been a, uh, gosh, I think we've, we've known each other for, we've known each other really well for half a century, and so, uh, it, it is, it's kind of, it, it's an interesting story. A lot, a lot of little dramas in there. That are fun, fun to think back on. Well, thank God for you, because otherwise. And he by the way, that girl Monica, I had a big crush on her, and of course, she liked Alan, and Alan kind of liked her. That's how it always was, AJ. It was That's always funny. I had some crush on a girl. She liked Alan, and Alan sort of liked hers. You know. <laughs> Oh, that's too bad. I, I I know her. She has a little Havanese dog. Well, that's too bad. And she actually ended up at one point she was divorced. There could have been a period where. Oh, yeah. well, this is all. This uh, is me thinking back on when I was 16. <laughs> this is great. Well, thanks. But that's, a, so that, but that's a very common refrain. That That was more than one time that was that way. That is so funny. I just I can't believe that. But thank God for you or Dr. Goldheimer might not have a friend in the world. <laughs> Oh, grand. Thank you, Dr. Lyle. This was great. I mean, these questions were really good, and I, I really enjoyed listening to the answers. Oh, fantastic, AJ. And we'll see you all very soon. We'll see you next month. And thanks, all of you, for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. I sure hope you'll come back tomorrow a little earlier at 10 a.m. because Dr. John McDougall will be in the house. It is not his normal time. He, he will come on next Monday for his regular show. But Kathy Hester, who's a dear friend of mine who has a regular slot the first Wednesday of the month, recently did the McDougall program with her reluctant spouse, who is now off almost all of her diabetes medications. So there is always hope for weight loss, disease reversal. And we're going to have Dr. McDougall tomorrow to tell you how you can do that. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.